Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When Diplomacy Fails presents Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome to Hello when and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails A project five years in the making the Franco-Prussian War, the Seven Years' War, of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon, the Crimean War, to When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One, Dutch Revolt, to the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War, the July Crisis Anniversary Project, the Swedish Deluge, Britain goes to war, the 1916, to the Rising. Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered look at the Indian Revolt of 1857, which originally aired as one episode on the 21st of October, 2012. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Episode 16, The Indian Revolt of 1857. The Indian Revolt has been called many things, from a mutiny to a rebellion and even a revolution, but what was it? Where does it or did it fit into our timeline enough that I considered it worthy of our time? At the time I released this episode, I have to be honest, I was getting my teeth into new college modules at the start of second year, so that's where this episode is literally sourced from. I had a tremendous Sikh professor who delved into the ins and outs of Indian history, but his interests revolved around the British Raj, otherwise known as the British Empire in India, so my interest spawned from out of that. When I learned that Indian soldiers, for so long loyal and tied down to London in the unique but sometimes convenient trade monopoly slash licensed empire builder relationship they had going down there, I felt drawn to it. And indeed, I even wrote an essay on it, for which I got an A. Whether this episode deserved an A or not is up to you. It may sound too provincial and not diplomatic enough for us, but researching it enabled me to use what I had learned, something which I obviously relished since it felt like my tuition was actually going somewhere, i.e. into this podcast. 
I do hope this enjoyment comes across here, as we give India's mutiny another go. First though, it should be said, this podcast is on Patreon, this gift of our birthday is all for you, and you are awesome history friends. If you'd like a little bit more of when diplomacy fails in your life, if somehow you're not sick of my voice yet, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or wdfpodcast.com and click on the Patreon banner. You know the drill guys, support the podcast, get awesome stuff from more audio content to awesome merch, and you will be beginning your journey as a wonderful history friend. You might even get a mug for it. So yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode, guys. I will now take you to the year 1600. Life is too short to be little. Man is never so manly as when he feels deeply, acts boldly, and expresses himself with frankness and with fervour. Benjamin Disraeli The 31st of December 1600 was an important date for English imperial designs. After years of petitioning, Queen Elizabeth had finally agreed to send a few ships the long way around the Cape of Africa into India, to establish some lucrative trade deals with the Indian spice traders there. It didn't go too well at first. The ships Liz decided to send in the decade before 1600 all disappeared or were lost in various conditions. Obviously, Liz was planning to settle on a date everyone could remember, because on the last day of 1600, she ordered a royal charter be granted to George Clifford, the third Earl of Cumberland, to establish what was called the Governor and Company of Merchants of London trading with the East Indies. Clifford would miss out, though, since he was a bit too old for the kind of journey that was expected of him, so he gave his blessing for James Lancaster to man the first officially sponsored voyage to India in 1601, with the aim of creating a permanent English presence in India's trade markets. Once again, and you should be starting to notice a pattern here, guys, it didn't go so well. Liz was very aware of how nearing bankruptcy the English state was, mostly due to a protracted war with Ireland for the past decade, not to mention the longer-lasting war with Spain. So she wasn't particularly keen on the idea of shelling out loads of money if it wasn't entirely necessary. Unfortunately, though, it was necessary. The Dutch East India Company was a well-established player in Indian markets. The Dutch knew the best ways to make a deal, they had a reasonable grasp of the regional and local politics, and they had an unchallenged monopoly in Indonesia, which was also a huge help. The Dutch trade juggernaut could not be at least matched without significant investment, that much was clear, but the very first notable English factory, set in the town of Makalapatnam, or the Coromandel coast of the Bay of Bengal, began to show promising signs. These high profits reported by the company after landing in India initially prompted King James I to grant subsidiary licenses to other trading companies in England. But in 1609 he renewed the charter given to the company for an indefinite period, including a clause which specified that the charter would cease to be in force if the trade turned unprofitable for three consecutive years. This clause was to define the English presence in India for the next 250 years, because it meant that the East India Company now had a monopoly on any Anglo-Indian trade or business in India. All it had to do now was expand. And in doing this, the English wasted little time. 
1612, they had decimated the Portuguese fleet in the Battle of Swally, seriously affecting one of their primary competitors. But the Dutch still loomed large, and the Portuguese were down but not at all out, so the English tried something new. Diplomacy. The Mughal Empire, a civilization which deserves a podcast in of itself, was at this stage flourishing, and the decision was made to negotiate a monopoly on trade between the Mughal Emperor, Nuruddin Salim Jahangir, and the English Trade Company. At this stage, the English presence resembled little more than an embassy in India, and English traders operated only with the Mughal Emperor's OK. India was relatively united under Mughal rule in the early 17th century, and the English represented nothing more than merchants, who provided goods to the Emperor from across the world, in return for safe passage and a reasonable rate of return. The Mughals possessed the land, the advantages and the control over pricing, and if England wanted to play, then she had to pay. So the deal was made, low-cost European goods in exchange for an exclusive right to build factories and trading missions across Surat, which, if you can imagine India as a big triangle, is in the top left corner. So happy was the Mughal Emperor with this deal that he sent a letter to King James I, telling him how good a deal it really was, saying, Upon which assurance of your royal love I have given my general command to all the kingdoms and ports of my dominions to receive all the merchants of the English nation as the subjects of my friend, that in what place soever they choose to live they may have free liberty without any restraint, and at what port soever they shall arrive, that neither Portugal nor any other shall dare to molest their quiet, and in what city soever they shall have residence, I have commanded all my governors and captains to give them freedom, answerable to their own desires, to sell, buy and transport into their country at their pleasure. For confirmation of our love and friendship, I desire your majesty to command your merchants to bring in their ships of all sorts of rarities and rich goods fit for my palace, and that you be pleased to send me your royal letters by every opportunity, that I may rejoice in your health and prosperous affairs, that our friendship may be interchanged and eternal. This agreement, combined with imperial sponsorship of enterprises, caused the English East India Company to grow and grow. By 1647, the company had 23 factories under its chartered umbrella, each under the command of a master merchant, and had 90 employees in India. The major factories became the walled forts of Fort William in Bengal, Fort St. George in Madras, and the Bombay Castle. Over time, the regions which resembled the power and might of the English most were these forts, which had grown from factories and soon served as a kind of compound for the English, far as they were from their island homes. In 1717, the emperor waived customs duties completely in Bengal, which is in the top right of the upside-down triangle, causing the English East India Company to establish a notable presence in both sides of the huge landmass. The emperor had no reason not to encourage the expansion of a stable and profitable trading partner. It meant reliable access to European goods and an appreciative market for native Indian goods. It was a profitable relationship for both sides. In 1711, the Chinese emperor had reached out to the East India Company and agreed to trade tea in exchange for its silver. This silver, in time, would become the sole means by which England and then Britain could acquire its tea. London would come to resent this weight on its silver to such a degree that a new tactic would be used in China, the trafficking of opium into the country, and the trade of it over silver. Thus, with London reaching out its merchant routes at this earliest stage, we can already see the beginnings of conflict to come. 
a conflict which we saw explode in the Boxer Rebellion of the last episode. Fierce amounts of money were changing hands by this stage. The company men were made filthy, stinking rich by their enterprises, and they retired to grand estates in Britain where they told stories of their deeds and encouraged entrepreneurs to follow in their footsteps. The East India Company established a lobby group for itself in the House of Commons, thus enabling it to influence state policy with respect to India. The unification of the two crowns of England and Scotland in 1707 also freed up more options for the East India Company, as Scots travelled abroad seeking fortune in place of their recently removed independence. It meant that England easily balanced out the budget at home, and was not too fussed about paying the Scottish deficit for the years to come either. During this time, the early 18th century, the British Parliament wrestled with the East India Company on the issue of its independence from the Crown. Despite the Act of 1698, which enabled private businesses to exist in India, the East India Company still had a monopoly and was agitating for its independence. Its stockholders and higher-ups believed it could do more, grow more and make more money if it wasn't held by the British leash. But this request was repeatedly rebuffed. The East India Company had become too important to British enterprise to just let it go. In 1730, the East India Company's licence to act as the state's primary trading body was renewed until 1766. By 1730, the East India Company had its own army, navy and diplomats, all in the name, officially, of Britain's crown, but in the actual name of making a boatload of cash. It was in every sense a very strange creation, but it reflects the fact that the East India Company was first and foremost a money-making enterprise, and was not seen as the imperial tool of Britain. Only within the next few decades would the idea of power in India switch from money to land, but even at this stage the East India Company possessed arms, diplomats and recognised spheres of influence, mostly on the Indian coast. The company men which controlled them on the surface seemed like a disaster waiting to happen, since they were miles away from home and inundated with monies with which they could fight personal wars in the regions, but the company men wouldn't dare jeopardise the good thing they had going in India. The best way for the money to keep flowing in was for the status quo to remain in place. Thus, the East India Company was well prepared, though a bit apprehensive, when war came with France in the Seven Years' War of 1756. The two decades before had seen a mass of small wars of conquest be launched on the back of a war at home in Europe. The first began when the War of the Austrian Succession was half over, and it ended in 1748. The second began over a succession crisis within India, specifically the Nizam or Emperor of Hyderabad, which roughly covers the centre of our Indian upside-down triangle mind map. The French and British decided it would be fun to support their own candidates to the succession, and so war broke out, financed by both sides, with similar aims during the quasi-war to undermine the other's influence in the region. The Third War is the one we're talking about now, and is characterised by crucial game-changing victories on the part of the British, who captured the Franco-Indian capital Pondicherry from the French in 1761. Though they did give it back in the subsequent peace deal and the Treaty of Paris, Britain's terms crippled the French ability to create its Indian Empire, leaving Britain with an effective monopoly on the subcontinent, and France to collapse in on itself later that century. By now, the transition from money to land had definitively taken place. 
But what was happening in India at this time? What did the Mughal emperors think about Britain and France intervening in their affairs? Well, it's unlikely they were all that happy about it, but the Mughal Empire had been in steady decline since 1700, and this was precipitated by its lack of authority in its border areas, its failure in numerous wars with various Persian sultanates, the nationalistic desires of its key provinces, the collapse of its armies, and the groundswell in power of those that were now exploiting it. It thus wasn't so much that any of the European companies aimed from the beginning to take over India, they just happened to be in the right place when the dominant empire of the era collapsed. Faced with lawlessness on the one hand and a declining imperial authority on the other, many company men felt that they had little option but to increase the authority of their charter to operate in place of the old regime. Seen like this, it's little wonder historians often comment on the British Raj being a kind of accident of history. It was a strange and unnatural creation because London never intended to take over in. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Yeah, in the first place, it just kind of happened that way, with a bit of persuasion from those company men who saw the advantageous deals, the increased trade rights, and added security. Why trade with a local plantation owner when you can push ahead with the company and own that plantation? Why stop there? I mean, why not add his neighbour's plantation, and then the fishery beside it? And why not that mine and the pepper warehouse as well? This line of thinking soon began to run away from the British as their company men sought out more ambitious deals in the second half of the 18th century, and as they fought important regional wars in the first few decades of the 19th century. It was all in the name of a good deal, but... That didn't stop the British presence looking more and more like an empire, especially since the company held lands under its jurisdiction, and those lands were technically owned first and foremost by the Crown. As if the British couldn't get a better hand dealt to them, the process of industrial revolution transformed the British and created new opportunities, new demands and new ideas, 
Suddenly, Britain was champion of North America, India, Europe, and the world. Nobody else held such power, wealth, and resources in their grasp. As a combination of factors removed North America from this equation, this only increased the importance of India to the British. By the mid-1700s, it was the newly minted Martha Confederacy that was the top dog in India, controlling the vast majority of the subcontinent through powerful regional vassals and extending their influence through additional buffer areas. The Mughal Empire ceased to exist in all but name at this stage, as the power and control it once exercised over the continent had been usurped by the Martha Confederacy. It is a fascinating story, but one which we unfortunately don't have time to go into much here. The Mughal Emperor still existed, was based in Delhi, and mostly protected and paid for by the British through the East India Company. This was generally the extent of his power though, as the Mughal Empire would not rise again, certainly never to its greatest extent, and Britain blasted through the Maratha Confederacy with modern weapons and tactics, defeating it in three successive wars from 1775 to 1818. When the war with Napoleon heated up in the early 1800s, Britain used the resources at its disposal, notably large amounts of dough, to pay off its allies to fight Napoleon. This didn't work at first, but the idea that Britain was the Bank of Europe, and that trading with Britain was essential for a European state's survival, gradually contributed to Boney's downfall by 1815. Britain was by now connected to trade routes snaking across the Seven Seas, and its East India Company had mutated into a kind of state of its own, albeit one that was hopeless at administering its newly acquired territory, which it had demonstrated in 1770 by allowing a devastating Bengal famine to occur, which killed one-third of the population in the east of the country, causing a series of chain reactions that put the East India Company in a position it really shouldn't have been in. Because of the resulting labour shortage and fall in revenue, the East India Company felt compelled to quickly sell off its surplus supplies, or else, as the original charter had it, it would be dissolved if it failed to make a profit for three consecutive years. Whether London would ever dare dissolve a cash cow like the East India Company is doubtful, but the interconnected nature of the empire was on full display nonetheless, as a surplus in tea, which then became an overtaxed tea, which then became tea lost in Boston Harbour, was the eventual result. Britain couldn't afford such disasters, obviously, and basically told the East India Company to get its act together. When the East India Company made excuses, the Parliament of Britain acted itself in 1773 and passed the East India Company Act, effectively guaranteeing British state control of the company due to economic and administrative reforms. This act was resisted by lobby groups in Parliament, but to no avail, and company lands became crown lands with governor-generals and agents of the crown coming in to administrate the huge swathes of land that the East India Company had spent the last 150 years carving out of the Indian subcontinent. Officially, though, this did not mean the end of the company, it just meant that the situation had changed. The East India Company was still the critical middleman between Britain and India, and for the moment it was thus indispensable. William Pitt's India Act in 1784 increased and made official this relationship, establishing the Board of Control, which was a joint cabinet filled with representatives from the British government itself, and the company men at the top of their positions. You see, a lot of references to British India at this stage. 
Since around the mid-18th century, and basically but bluntly once Britain had the means, India as we know it began to look more and more like an imperial acquisition, and less and less like a mutually beneficial trading relationship. We call it British India because it's a handy way to reference it, but in reality Britain itself owned little actual land there, and had very few actual soldiers, directly controlled by London on the ground. The company was a big part of this method of rule. As the 18th century wound down and France began to acquire international attention for all the wrong reasons, Britain was acting through the guise of the East India Company to establish friendly vassals and highly lucrative and often one-sided trade deals with provinces and regions of India that had once been considered themselves, first a part of the Mughal Empire, and then the Maratak Confederacy, but which were now independent, and as a result more vulnerable. After 1818, when the Maratak Confederacy had been defeated and effectively broken up, Britain faced no challenges, either from foreign or local Indian powers. With nothing and nobody to stop it, and after establishing itself as the dominant nation in Europe after the Napoleonic Wars, Britain's Indian ambitions skyrocketed. If Britain ever had a golden age, then this was it. From the years immediately following the war with France, Britain was secure with its policies on the continent, being dominant in the Mediterranean with strategic bases in Malta and Gibraltar. British North America or Canada was expanding into the vast frozen wilderness and had recently beaten back an American attack in the War of 1812, as we know, creating for Britain a chance to justify its holdings there and creating for the Canadians a kind of identity which ensured that they wouldn't follow America's lead. The Pacific was a new market, cautiously approached by Britain at this time also, with new opportunities popping up due to the soon-to-be explosion of interest in Chinese affairs, while the penal colony in Australia was slowly becoming an entity of its own. South Africa had new British masters in the former Dutch Cape Colony, which greatly increased British security along that sea route, not to mention profits, and the British saw no signs of limiting their interests to the southern tip of the African landmass, following the lead of some of the earliest colonisers in the Portuguese and Spanish, and making their presence felt among the fringes of Ottoman rule. Britain was simultaneously establishing trade deals with Imperial China, as we saw, while also reinforcing its position as the trading nation, with new opportunities for financial gain in South America, once Spanish rule had all but evaporated there in the 1820s. The British rushed first to defend the newly independent Latin American states, and then to offer them the most beneficial, exclusive trade deals that they could, shutting their competition out in the process. Everywhere around the world, it seemed, Britain's ships, its diplomats and its representatives appeared to be present, trading, negotiating and expanding. Those three activities were undertaken most aggressively, the most relentlessly and the most expensively in India. As Jeremy Paxman put it in his book, Empire, The Atlantic Empire did not become an empire according to some great plan, but by the opportunism of businessmen, the ambition of travellers, the self-confidence of the military, a gathering sense of national purpose, and a series of accidents. The place where this development of imperial purpose was most observable was in the grandest of all imperial possessions, India. While Jeremy Paxman often gets a good bit of stick somewhat unfairly in my view from contemporary historians for not being and yet trying to be a historian, anyone can see he has a good point here. The danger today is that we might view history backwards, viewing Britain as an empire that was all but guaranteed to emerge, 
even though at the time, when Liz had finally approved the sending of ships and the establishment of a royal charter, not much was expected of it, except that hopefully it would generate enough cash to bring England back from the brink of bankruptcy. While the Empire in itself is undoubtedly a feat, without sounding either too romantic or critical, we ascribe too much credit towards Britain and pile too much inferiority on India if we imagine that the Empire was guaranteed to exist from the start. With that disclaimer, or whatever you want to call it out of the way, let's resume. The following years were crucially important for the Anglo-Indian state for numerous reasons, so I hope you don't mind if I drop some more knowledge on you and hopefully set some context to the 1857 conflict in the process. A new act called the Charter of 1813 had renewed the company's license and reinforced its position, no longer as the primary trader in the area, but as the ever-present middleman in India. By now the company resembled less and less an actual company, and began to look instead like the fancy name for Britain's ruling apparatus in the colony. And by now it clearly was a colony. The 1813 Charter had made clear the boundaries of British India, and they encompassed all of India except for the Punjab and the Singh regions. Every other Indian prince, principality and province was either directly ruled or was working for the British East India Company. Obviously, one tries not to sound too controversial when describing this territory, but by all accounts it is astonishing. India's land and population obviously far exceeded Britain's, and yet it was Britain thousands of miles away that was now ruling almost all of India. The wars to get here had been pricey, that cannot be denied, but Parliament proved yet again that it was very willing to provide the funds, further increasing the reliance that the East India Company had on Britain back home. However, while native Indians undoubtedly resented the encroachment, actually I suppose by now takeover will be the right word, it was one clause in the new charter which would have the most devastating consequences for the British Indian holdings, i.e. that Christian missionaries from Britain were now allowed to come to British India and preach their faith. This relatively sudden change was compounded by what I like to call the moral revolution of the early 1800s. During this time, slavery was abolished after heavy campaigning while missionaries within both Britain and Europe looked to their former colonies, in the case of Spain and to the Pacific and Asia in the case of everyone else, as a new way to spread their message. New opportunities for gaining adherents in Asia, with the opening of China to British trade arose. China had of course traded with Europe before, but Britain's newfound enthusiasm for spreading Christianity in India would soon be extended to all of Asia encouraging other European nations to do the same. Christianity was a handy way to both establish a permanent presence in the land, and of course save some native souls. This policy led almost directly to the Boxer Rebellion, as we've seen, but in India the process was underway too, as William Dalrymple in his book The Last Mughal explains when he writes, India in the 1840s and 50s was slowly filling with pious British evangelicals, who wanted not just to rule and administer India, but also to redeem and improve it. Dalrymple refers to the example of Reverend John Jennings, the chaplain of the Christian population in Delhi, as his primary case for British Christian expansion into India. Dalrymple's quoting of Jennings in this case really gives you an insight into the dogmatism and also the unrelenting passion within British missionaries at this time. When Jennings arrived in India, Dalrymple quotes him as saying, Within Delhi's walls the pride of life, the lust of the eye and the lusts of the flesh have reigned and reveled to the full. 
and the glories of the kingdoms of this portion of the earth have passed from one wicked possessor to the other. It is as though it were permitted by the evil one, there at least to verify his boast that he give it to whom he will, but of truth, of meekness, and of righteousness, the power has not been seen. Such religious ideas were not limited to the missionaries either, as one trooper of the Dragoon Guards was reported to have declared. A religious mania sprang up and reigned supreme, the adjutant and sergeant major having become quite sanctimonious, attending religious meetings every morning. Natives of all class, caste, and regiment are read portions of the Bible in the highways, cities, bazaars, and villages, all hoping that the Lord will make him the happy instrument of converting his neighbour to God, or, in other words, of rescuing him from eternal damnation. Britain may have acquired its empire by accident in India, but those on the ground now pointed to the empire's higher purpose. Make no mistake, Britain was still there to make money, but it was now there for a reason which could be used to justify its position to any apparent critics at home, either privately or publicly. Britain's East India Company was a good thing for India because Indians were getting to hear the true message and will also hopefully be saved. At the same time, though, some of the original company men continued to be critical of what they saw as a redefining of Britain's relationship with the East India Company and the rest of India. The best thing about the East India Company was that it had always appeared to be the stoic trading partner. Whatever about its monstrous lust for power, the company men that operated it rarely sought to change how Indians lived or control their hearts and minds. These men saw this new departure as a somewhat dangerous trend then, because there was real potential that a disgruntled native populace would rebel against the company for religious reasons in the future. These company men thus argued that they would be forced to fight for a cause which was never theirs to begin with. They were there to make money after all, not to save souls. Thus it was a strangely hypocritical and conflicted ethos which drove British missionaries and men on the ground to approach the idea of an India whose souls needed saving, but whose people were too inferior to do it for themselves. It was this attitude and this policy which would cause such problems later on. In the next episode, we'll trace how these problems led in time to the greatest explosion of anti-British feeling that the company men had ever seen. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 